This episode of the Sportsman's Empire is brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Since 1952, Interstate Batteries has been evoking compassion and a trustworthy spirit into the surrounding communities. Interstate Batteries is a mission-driven company fueled by purpose and guided by their values. If you need help locating a specific battery, stop into your local Interstate Batteries retail store and speak with a battery specialist. They even offer cell phone repairs. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is to maximize your hunt. Hopefully everybody's doing well. I am home today and I am not on the road for a few days, so I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, I just got back from a trip over the weekend and uh, I might do some cutting of timber this weekend. And then next week, um, I'm, I'm on to the next project. I'm working on a pretty large property right now. It's about 550 acres and I'm doing layout. Hopefully we'll be doing some turnkey and work on that particular property. And cutting season's coming up for me. Uh, my partner will be doing some cutting on client properties, etc. I wanted to mention a client that we had worked with a few years ago. His son had killed a beautiful buck in Vermont and I wanted to give him a shout out. I know they listen to this podcast. So Oliver Audette, congratulations to making a big game trophy club buck for Vermont. It's a big deal for us and happy to support you and uh, obviously your property. So shout out to Oliver. He's a young man who, who obviously bought into the system and, and so did his family. So we, we appreciate you all. I appreciate your business and support and congratulations. The next thing I want to mention is Ryan Bull, you won the hat. So this hat giveaway for Whitetail Company, I will send that to you. You need to send me your address. So next week, I'll be doing another giveaway. Again, you know, these are freebies. If people want to continue to support, there's, I think we have a guest coming on. He's going to do another giveaway. We'll continue to give stuff away. This is a great chance for people to give back to other people. And that's what this podcast is about. Last point I want to make to everybody I appreciate everybody's support. I, I got a bunch of calls today. I was in the office working on uh, client drawing, and, and I was getting calls uh, all day today, people that are interested uh, in, in my services and support. I'm pretty pretty booked for the year. I, I probably won't take on any more clients. And uh, so in 2025, so prepare to get a hold of me now for 25. And if I can slide you in the season, I will. I have a bit of a wait list. A couple people are waiting. Well, it's a little bit more than a couple people, but... If you want to get in the schedule, please get a hold of me. Um, there's a reason why there's a lot of people contacting me. There's a reason why I'm booked up. But also, you know, it's a chance for you to connect with me and, and learn more about my business. So feel free to reach out and contact me. And uh, I had a couple intros today to guys that were just, you know, they've listened to the podcast for a couple of years now and they wanted some more information. So, all right, enough with that. We got a brand new guest. So let's let's get to him. Hey, Roger, are you on the line? Yeah, yeah, I'm here, John. Okay, so we got Roger Sampson, and I've been trying to dog you for about a year to get on this podcast, so I'm uh, pretty happy and excited that you're here today. How are you doing? 
Good. It's great to join you. Good. I want to hear a little bit about you, and let's talk a little bit about kind of your history and evolution uh, with your product, and, and I want you to introduce what you do. Well, my, my background is really I'm an Aggie, and I'm a nature lover, and um, I, I worked uh, a lot in uh, agroecology, and I've, I've been to like um, 30 countries, like working as an agricultural uh, specialist, and um, I got really interested in native grasses uh, about 30 years ago, and uh, nothing, nothing makes better soil than native grasses, and very few people were interested in them. And I thought I thought it had a big potential as a renewable raw material for um, for a greener economy and, and for diversifying the farm sector. And you know, a lot of lot of benefits for nature. And it's great to have a connection with the habitat sector because uh, it gets it gets the product out there, and people learn to grow it, and then they learn to farm it. So I, I think there's quite a few farmers that are embedded in the in the habitat sector and everybody's connected and most farmers are hunters so yeah we're more than pleased to be working real hard to to develop switch better switchgrasses for the habitat sector i think switchgrass is something so i did my first switchgrass planting now it was 22 years ago Um, i was in my early 20s i had borrowed a neighbor's no-till drill and it was a, a giant machine and i Punched it in uh, during a wet, soggy day. I didn't know anything, and certainly I learned a good lesson that day. And preparation and planning is really important for switchgrass. I think a lot of people uh, don't pay attention to the the little bits, and that little data point was huge for me. It was a good learning experience. But in those days, the, the particular cultivars or varieties that I was used to were pretty limited and um you know probably developed i think you know even in years earlier than that of course uh some of those being like cave and rock i think one of the varieties was sunburst cane low alamo I'm trying to think what the other varieties that we use uh black was it i'm trying to think some of the other varieties that i used in those days blackwell yeah blackwell that might have been one of the varieties so those are maybe older type varieties and, and i don't know the history or evolution of, of those per se but i, I kind of wanted to have you go back and maybe give me uh a greek mythology here <laughs> take me through the discussion cool. point of kind of how are these grasses developed and formed and and then where are we at today with with the varieties that you've kind of designed and come up with well the uh, native grasses the history of it really goes back to the dust bowl and um, when the dust bowl hit in the 30s they were looking for responses and uh, the native grasses were a pretty logical way to heal the soil and uh, stop erosion. So uh, about, it's about 80 years ago, they, they started working pretty aggressively in the late thirties, early forties on, on developing, um, making collections of switchgrass. So most of the varieties that we have today were actually great plains selections and because they were looking for grasses for um, for that particular area, and um, you know, then it then it transitioned more into livestock use. So they were trying to feed it to beef cattle grazing, in particular, and so that led to quite a few different varieties. Like Blackwell was like seventy years old, <laughs> and uh, you know, Cave and Rock is one of the very few that's out of the Midwest, and it was out of Southern Illinois, Cave and Rock, Illinois. 
And uh, it was just two found plants, and they multiplied it up, and it looked pretty good, so they called it Cave and Rock, Illinois, and that's all the sophistication there is to it. <laughs> well, hey, guys, you brought up a couple points there, and I want to hit on this. So let's talk about switchgrass uses, and, and let's let's get away from the wildlife thing for a second. My experience that I was on a farm, I don't know, years and years ago, that they had planted switchgrass for cattle. So, you know, they're at a certain point interval, and I, I'm sure it's before seed stage, you know, they were grazing it. And it probably anywhere between 8 to 12 inches tall, they were grazing it. And they were also baling it for, for cattle as well. And that was my first introduction to it on the landscape. And it's just, it was so vigorous. And almost, I'll say this, and, and hopefully this doesn't offend you, but actually quite noxious. It took over a lot of the areas um, in the resident kind of plain or grassland area that they had set up. So, you know, that was one of the things that I had I had noticed. But what are other uses other than I've seen it on reclaimed sites? I've seen them use it for, for mining, you know, to reclaim some of the mine locations that they've worked on locally. So what, what are the things that you've typically seen it for? You mentioned erosion control, anything along those lines otherwise? Yeah, I mean, my first my first exposure to it, believe it or not, was in third year university. And we were looking at it as a midsummer grazing species in Ontario. And uh, I actually did a lit review way back when, actually 40 years ago, on switchgrass as a midsummer grazing species. So that was that was my introduction to switchgrass. And the the professor that taught the course that I was um, I learned about switchgrass was teaching a, a course on mine reclamation. And at that time, switchgrass was one of the best species for like mine reclamation in places like Kentucky. And um, you know, there, there's obviously there's a lot of CRP and, and like conservation uses of it. Um, we're trying to introduce it more into the dairy sector in the Northeast because there's so many dairy cows and it has some, it has some real benefits to feeding uh, in particular dry calf, cows and heifers and hygienic livestock bedding. So, so I would say that like in, in Canada, most switchgrass is sold for, to the dairy sector. And then, it, like it's used for things like strawberry mulch, so it's got a lot. It's a multi-use product. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great thing to consider. Now, what about biofuels? H- had it ever taken off in that field sector? We had talked about offline. We had talked about willows. I wonder if it had ever been kind of utilized in, in that world, so to speak. Any any interest in that world? I mean, that's where we originally got started. Is that the Canadian government wanted somebody to upscale willows? And uh, we started the first year on the willows, and we said, wow, this is difficult to grow as a, as a biomass feedstock for energy. The farmers would also like to grow switchgrass. So we grew some switchgrass with the willows, and we found the switchgrass was just a lot cheaper and easier to grow. And so then we were like, what to do with it? Well, everybody wanted to make cellulosic ethanol out of it. It was the holy grail to, for American energy independence. So we, we, we got in on cellulosic ethanol 30 years ago on that research. And, and, um, and then we, we started looking at densifying it and making it into fuel pellets and heating houses. So I, I actually had my house run on switchgrass pellets at one point. And I still, have the, I still have the gasifier pellet stove in my garage. Oh, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know that about you. That's, that's interesting. And how did it heat? How, how did it do? I did pretty good, but, you know, the... It's all about functional reliability, and in terms of functional reliability, it was kind of like sometimes you can make clinkers and things like that, so this machine was shut down, and um, 
you know, it became pretty clear to me that wood pellets are an easier product to burn and that switchgrass pellets are more for an industrial uh, heat source. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense here. All right. So let, let me, let me ask you this. And this is, this is just one of these things that I think people may not understand. So when we had talked previously offline, you started giving me more information on just kind of the development of this particular variety or many varieties that you've come up with and characteristics and how you got there and the, the breeding aspect of it. How do you get from these old varieties to current types? And I want to go through that lineage and just, just the process involved in that. Well, my background is in on-farm research. So we actually like planted these grasses out on farms and we got feedback from farmers and the farmers said, they, they actually laughed at how slow it was growing and said, you're going to make that into a field crop. And they, they just, they just thought it was like ridiculously slow. They said like after, after a month, it's still, the, the field still looked like pavement. So that was a pretty tough lesson. So we knew we had to improve seedling vigor and get them out of the ground and get them growing more like a cereal crop. And, uh, and then in terms of the way we did it, like we just, you know, I, I, myself and somebody else in the organization, we toured around quite a bit. We went to see most of the breeders in the northern U.S. and Midwest, uh, New York. We went to um, the Plant Material Center in New York, um, Big Flats. And uh, we, you know, we visited with all the breeders and we learned what they were doing. And, uh, you know, you, you try to, anyway, the way, the way you're supposed to look at things is you sympathetically appropriate the information. Basically, you, you take the information as pretty interesting and process it and then try to make it better, you know, just like, just like you try to make a better habitat plan. So, so um, what, what we saw was that the grasses had dormancy problems. The grasses had slow emergence and, and they emerged with too many little fine tillers. So we learned we could breed them to like to have low dormancy just by repetitively selecting them in a greenhouse. So for example, we'd, we'd dump 30,000 seeds in a, in a, in a thousand cells of, of um, trays. And then we just pick up the ones that emerge the fastest. And then we just do that over and over and over again. And, and the, basically to make a better plant, you have to understand the plant, like all the aspects of the plant. So they want it taller. They want it to not fall over. They, they like it so that it, um, it, it, it gets to like five or six feet in the first year, you know, emerges fast, beats the weeds down. So all those, all those aspects have to be integrated into the breeding program. And we specifically worked with low upland switchgrass because most of the U.S. breeders are working with lowland switchgrass. And um, we liked the upland switchgrass because it didn't really have any serious problems that we couldn't fix. Whereas like lowland switchgrass is just not that hardy and it's not that drought tolerant and the seed's really tiny. So it's difficult to emerge. So, so we focused on these large seeded uplands and just, and just studied what miscanthus looks like and what lowland switchgrass looks like and try to integrate those, those better agronomy traits into the upland switchgrass. So how long did this process take at least to this point now? How many years did this take you? We started 30 years ago yeah. on, on our first breeding program, and we found it incredibly uh, intensive, like labor-intensive, and um, we sort of put the program on hold, 
And then we really, we actually reactivated right around the time that George Bush was pushing cellulosic ethanol and put switchgrass in his State of the Union address. And, and so it was quite funny because one of our farmers that we were working with on the on the biomass pellets, he uh, he listened to that speech, Don Knott, who's our main seed exporter, and uh, he planted 325 acres to, to try the crop. See, 325 acres he put in. First year, <laughs> no subsidy, just to try it because he heard it in George Bush's speech. Yeah. And at the, at before that time, Don was farming 12,000 acres in Ontario. So he, he knew how to grow, grow things, and he planted the switchgrass. And for the most part, he got a, a, lot, of, a lot of giant foxtail and green foxtail and a little bit of switchgrass. And, and after like two or three years, he got it going. So, so it's, it's been a, it's been, you know, quite a, quite a long process, the whole process of uh, taking this undomesticated crop, a wild species and trying to domesticate it. And, and we're, we're, we're pretty much there now in terms of like, we, we're comfortable call it a field crop now. You, you mentioned two things. You mentioned upland and, and then lowland varieties and the varieties that you've, you've kind of developed at this point, they're very upland focused, correct? Yeah, the lowlands really come out of warm, wet climates, okay? And the uplands come out of more uh, dry, cooler climates, so they have a lot more winter hardiness. Let's talk a little bit about that. And I think a lot of people, you know, I'm in a northern latitude. You're certainly in a northern latitude. You know, we're looking at zones upwards, you know, in the threes or fours in some, some particular areas. So these varieties that you're talking about, they have to deal with, Ice, heavy snows, and in our area, lake effect snow, my personal area, and heavy winds. And usually in a depleted surface or depleted area, there, there are not hedgerows anymore. You know, they've taken out a lot of the vegetation, and these have to be basically standing, you know, unlodged and erect in a form that basically provides cover. That's one of the requirements. It's it's a cover. It could be used for part of shelter boat screening, et cetera, but it's essentially that that's the form that we're trying to get in order to facilitate that and, and have it in an environment like that. I'm assuming you've done a lot of testing outside uh, a hoop house and in, in some environmental conditions that, that are pretty severe. I kind of want to know, you know, what that process was like and then what did you end up finding out? And then you're at the varieties you're at today. You know, you had to build something that was being able to develop like a, a shelter type scenario and, and to be winter hardy, essentially. So maybe dialogue a little bit about that. Well, I'll take you back to my first trip into the U.S. to see switchgrass. So we were camping at a lake in South Dakota, and a, and a summer thunderstorm kicked up on the lake. We were camping right on the edge of the lake. And and the wind and the gust and this big summer windstorm, you know, built up. And, and we just, our tent got collapsed, and I was like, wow, these grasses have to take these big, intense summer thunderstorms. So the switchgrass is, you know, it's, it's pretty hardy, you know, and we just, we just learned how to make it hardier. And the bigger the stem diameter, it's like trees. If you get, if you get a nice storm on a small poplar, it's going to break. And it's the same thing with switchgrass. If you get like a snow load on a, on a thin stem switchgrass, it's going to go over. So we, we bred them to have less tillers, like less, less sort of side shoots, and and bigger stems so we're trying to breed them biomassy and i used to tell the farmers we're trying to create a grass that even a buffalo wouldn't want to eat 
<laughs> okay, that's uh, that makes sense so, to me. That absolutely yeah, makes so, sense. So, to me. so we're basically we make, we're making fibrous grasses, and the other thing beside the energy sector, we're working with the pulp and paper sector, and we were trying to make these into like like fibrous crops for the pulp sector, and we we, we think that's a really promising technology. But but basically, we were breeding them to be bigger, and to be bigger, they, we had to make them more fibrous. So, like about five years ago, we started getting calls from the habitat sector, and they wanted to plant it for deer. And like, what's that? What's that? You know, we didn't really understand what was going on. Yeah. But but then all of a sudden, like everybody was interested in these tall erect grasses that, that are easier to grow because because like fifty years ago, they found cave and rock, and there's been nothing to improve it that's bigger. Until until our materials came along, so so in terms of upland switchgrass, these are the these are the first improved upland switchgrasses in thirty years that have been developed in North America. That, that's incredible, and I'm gonna, I want to give you a lot of credit for that because I, I think this sector, at least the wildlife sector that I work in, is starting to recognize the value of this particular plant. The, the ecological function of this plant is, is a lot more than just cover. And you mentioned something earlier, and and you talked about reclaiming mining locations. I have used this particular, not, not your variety, but I started using your variety three years ago, by the way. And when I first started using switchgrass specifically, one of the characteristics that I realized was I was looking at the root architecture and the depth and using it as a resource, meaning that plant at some point was bringing a lot of nutrients to the surface. And the biomass itself, just just the volume of material. Talk about be, being able to build you know, just decomposing organic material on the soil surface, just just that alone was huge to the whole process. And let alone those roots are able to go, you know, layers deep into the subsoil, providing opportunity to basically allow some of those minerals to be exposed to roots and then aeration, etc. And so that just creates a whole environment where you're really building depth to your soil. And I thought that was just a huge piece of the puzzle. On these poor soil sites where I'm, I'm dealing with compaction or other issues, I've actually used these products to allow air infiltration and to support better soil conditions or better soil habitat for some of the microbes and, and some of the earthworms, et cetera. So to me, the plant's depth is more than just the stem. And so I just want to mention that to folks because that's one of the main purposes that I see, and, and you mentioned that. All right, let me get yeah. to, let me get to a point on that, though. So... In your world today, and you're supporting the wildlife sector in a pretty big quantity, I think you're kind of on the, the the teetering edge of everything at this point. How have you seen people embrace your product? Because I've watched videos that you've put out there, and it's like this versus this versus this. And I want you to talk about specific varieties that you offer. And I don't, you can cross compare against older varieties and, and no other companies per se, but just just varieties, and what are you seeing just in differences, so to speak? Well, in the end, it's all about results. And if, if no matter how much you can you hype a product, if it doesn't get results in the field, you 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 don't have any lasting uh, credibility. Yeah. So, so like through my international development work, I really learned about what makes a, a great crop variety, and and really, it's it's what makes a great crop variety is that it never bombs. And so that people are always pretty happy. They know they're going to get the results. And uh, wide adaptability. So the Big Rock, for example, it's doing well in Nova Scotia, and it's doing well in Nebraska, you know, in research trials. And it's, and it's 
you know, we we're having people saying that they're using it in, in, in North Georgia and it's working in North Georgia. So the, the, the big rock in particular has tremendous adaptability and that, and that's kind of follows cave and rock. Cave and rock was the most popular variety of switchgrass because it kind of came out of the, out of the central U S and it, and it had pretty good traits for adaptability. And when we do our breeding, we never use fertilizers in our breeding program. And so anything that's that's like a, a weak plant is gone. I love this. I love this. Keep going. I yeah. love it. So anyway, I, I learned about how to do like breeding for organic farming uh, in the Philippines, actually. And, and uh, you know, the, the breeders up in the uplands of the Philippines were using no fertilizers and they were getting the best yields in the country because they developed it in the environment that they wanted to grow it. And so, and so we never fertilized. We haven't fertilized our switchgrass in 25 years in our breeding nurseries. And, and that makes plants that evolve more efficient mechanisms. And, uh, you know, if you fertilize, you suppress those mechanisms and you just make the plants dependent on nitrogen. So I think one of the reasons why our varieties are doing well is that even if you put it on a crappy low fertility site, it's getting better results than the other materials. Let's get into the varieties specific that you're offering, and let's talk about the differences between them because some are designed for, let's say, wetter or drier conditions. I just I want to I want to understand the differences, so to speak, for for folks, and and I don't mean wet sites specifically, but a, a little more moist areas rather than just dry, rocky soil. So let's, let's kind of dig into that a little bit. Well, I, I characterize them mainly. There's two types of upland switchgrass. There's what you would call your Midwest varieties. Okay, so they're more of a more uh, a warmer, wetter environment, and then the other ones would be more the Great Plains varieties, and they that's a more arid environment. So, to a certain extent, you can plant a, a Great Plains variety and bring it a little bit east, but then it'll break down with um, like diseases because it's just not adapted to high humidity. So, um, a variety like like RC Big Rock bred out of Cave and Rock, it's really well adapted to to the um, to the humid um, Midwest, and um, we have another one that we call Tecumseh that was actually uh, origin, originally discovered um, near Nebraska City, just below Nebraska City. There's actually a town called Tecumseh, Nebraska, so we call it RC Tecumseh, and um, it does really well in in that transition zone between the the, the Great Plains and the Midwest. And it does really well in the in the upper Midwest on low fertility sandy soils. So places like northern Michigan, it's really doing well because they've got low fertility sandy soils. And um, often we tell people to mix it with the RC Big Rock, and they they they've got a pretty good tandem there working together. So so the Tecumseh really, if you were sowing it as a monoculture, it would probably be in areas let's call it um, under under roughly 28 inches of rainfall. And that might be like the western side of Minnesota. Yeah. And really doing well in South Dakota. We have it in a research trial in South Dakota near, um, yeah, north of, north of uh, northern South Dakota. And um, the RC Big Rock, we have it at like six locations. We've tested in the U.S. in research trials with the universities. And it's, it's basically it's done everywhere. Done well everywhere. So I've I want to just know a little bit more about the two. If you're looking at these two varieties, 
do they look different? Is there any different attributes um, of, of the stems themselves, coloration, any differences between the two? Well, I would probably say the biggest difference would be the leaf width. So in a more arid environment, you want a, sh- a narrower leaf. You know, in the extreme of that would be cactus. Okay? And so so in a more humid environment, you get a wider leaf, and it'll be a bit more higher performing. So the RC Big Rock uh, has a wider leaf. It's about 25% wider than the Tecumseh. And... Um, like the Tecumseh, um, Tecumseh has like a lighter color. It does better under heat stress. And um, we've we've made the, the RC Big Rock a bit more blue-green. So if you go to the south and you look at switchgrass in like in Texas, it's it's pretty much powder blue. Yeah. And and if you and if you take those powder blue varieties and you grow them in Tully or you grow in Montreal, <laughs> they they tend to be they tend to be slow emerging in the spring and get weedy. So we found this blue-green coloration works pretty well to give us heat tolerance and chilling tolerance. I want to go down a slightly different road here now. So we've developed these varieties that have better lodging, correct? I mean, the videos I watched was they're more erect and they're able to withstand, you mentioned the windstorm. What have you seen currently, and and I'm going to go back just quickly, when I used to develop blends for clients, we used to use varieties, and it was, this is my mainstay of, you know, use several varieties in order to insulate yourself from disease, or in this case, conditions, weather conditions, uh, that those varieties would, would normally be like a cave and rock, and I would include a shelter and a Shawnee, so those various varieties, different heights, acclimation to different conditions that was my typical go-to kind of methodology i've switched to utilizing your product and i've utilized your product and client properties and i've seen i've seen them do very well and i've seen them grow at a much faster rate and i haven't had the chance to compare you know because again i've just started instituting these recently i haven't had a chance to compare you know the, the rectness of the particular plant in conditions, but could you talk a little bit about what you've seen, at least in your test plots, when it comes to just standability? Well, what we what we did is we the first thing we did is we tried to make have create the plants so they have less tillers, right? So that they're bigger and they don't break over as easily. And and by the time we hit third year, those tillers are are pretty robust, and you get like maximum standability. So in the first and second year, you can have some lodging, but in the third year, it's a lot tougher plant. And, you know, we have a third year variety trial of five different varieties of switchgrass and the big rock is still standing. It's mid February and uh, we've had two and a half feet of snow. We've had some freezing rain and it's still standing pretty well. So, so like we're seeing that there's, there's definitely differences between the unselected materials and these new improved varieties. And um, so I would say, like, visually, we selected for more erect plants, and we, we, we got less tillers. The, the stem diameters are getting bigger. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's, we have other, some other techniques that we're, we're looking at to help, help people get them to stand better, including twin row planting. And uh, we've, we've also been working on big blue stem, and we've got big blue stem almost the same situation as switchgrass, 
certainly it'll take us through the hunting season and we're upscaling that and we think that we can use mixtures of the big blue stem and switchgrass and that people are going to like that especially the wildlife people oh i love this i love this i didn't know you were doing that that's amazing yeah we started we started on the big blue stem about 2008 okay and we've we've run about eight breeding cycles on them now and they they grow basically so similar to switchgrass yeah that's a great that'll be a great product to for screening because you know we've got materials that are 11 feet tall if you look at our videos on our facebook site like 11 foot tall uh, big blue stem and the big blue stem in our nurseries like I, I was looking at them today february 20th and we we got them standing in midwinter in montreal that's amazing and some of these restoration areas or even even i've worked on uh, some projects here with oak savannah community kind of design layout and i've introduce you know some of these species particularly on the sandy loomy soils and i've used you know little blue and some of the other varieties that we talked about earlier just kind of in in layout and sequence and the the one thing you just mentioned up is is a lot of people are doing we're not going to get into kind of establishment i think that's a whole long conversation um but but some of these varieties that we're talking about here that the technique you just mentioned is is that double row cropping and spacing have you come up with some kind of cadence of just planning sequences that you find that people are just leveraging that, that being one of them. And, and I don't think people are, a lot of people are just, you know, broadcasting or in, the, in this case, not using a planner, so to speak. And, and your varieties do very well in those conditions. And in this example, you just, just put into play. So can you explain a little bit about the two row or three row or four row or five row? What are you finding? Well, the more space you give the plant, the best, the better it stands. So, like if you if you plant, um, you know, super heavy, and it's solid seeded, and you get a you get a terrible driving wet winter winter storm, it'll go over, go over, especially in the first couple of years. So, what we saw was that row planting uh, does a lot better than solid seeded stands in terms of lodging, and. What we suspect is that if you align the switchgrass in a field, if you can do this, and you can put it in the direction of the predominant wind, that wind and that snow will just blow down between the rows. And and so those techniques can help. You know, a good shelter belt will help. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think we're at the point now where we're pretty confident we can get, in most areas, um, maybe not Buffalo, New York, because you guys get those heavy-duty fall snowstorms mm-hmm. off the lake. Yeah, you know, you know that that those are the ones that shut down uh, football games. You know, so the, the, that kind of extreme snow event, it'll it'll put down any switchgrass. But um, I, I would say that um, we're, we're pretty confident we can get through the the hunting season, and, and that's really what you need is to get through the hunting season. Yeah. You don't, you know, you, you can plant conifers for for cover for the winter, and the deer are going to use those more than switchgrass fields or or, or other grasses. You know, you just brought up a topic, and, and I had done some research, and, and it was through another gentleman that I know is just uh, where they had been planting rice and using the plant seedlings distance as, as a means to kind of develop and see, you know, how large or small a plant's going to be. And giving that plant space is really critical in this, this equation. What is your typical spread, at least size, of, of plant, that an individual seed or seedling? What, what are you seeing like the the size. I mean, traditionally, twelve to eighteen inches used to be the kind of the rule with with switchgrass seeding and planting. How close do you have them together when you're kind of doing a layout like that? Well, I think on more productive land, you can go wider road. Right. 
and and on you know marginal land you, you don't want to get the rows too wide here it's going to it's going to be more difficult with weeds so we like putting two rows together we call this the twin row system and then we'll, and then at the bottom of the the grain di- drill we'll duct tape over either one or two rows or sometimes we'll du- duct tape over one and then plant the twin row plant the twin row duct tape over two so you stagger your gap and that that really helps standability and it and it helps give a space for game birds, you know, turkeys, pheasants, quail. You know, they're gonna they're gonna use that more open space. So that's one of the criticisms of switchgrass is that it's it's not very friendly to to birds. And by by using this you know gap technique in the in the drill, you you can make it a lot more friendly for uh, for game birds. Yeah, I think it's a good strategy and, and one that I've seen people use, and I'm happy, I'm happy you kind of mentioned this, and then other varieties that are maybe of, of shorter height and uh, maybe less spread, et cetera, it could be in between these rows. So it's just thinking about variety in those particular equations. Let, let's go down a different road, and let's just talk a little bit about what you've seen the wildlife benefit be and then how you've kind of developed kind of synergies where – you're using this for a particular purpose. I want to just take your perspective on it. Uh, I, I obviously have a perspective because the plant I was drawing today, I was u- using it strictly for screening purposes. But what are the what are the purposes you see it for mostly in the landscape, particularly with wildlife folks? Well, I think, you know, m- many people that are your listeners are interested in do they hold bucks? And do they hold bucks during the, the, the gun season? And this is when when bucks are most skittish, and that when they do the studies on on bucks, what they find is they reduce their their visibility during that period by about twenty percent. In other words, the the uh, the area that they're in will, will be like twenty percent more confined. And so, what we've seen even with our with our farmers that grow switchgrass seed is they'll see big bucks in the middle of a switchgrass field in in the middle of October. And, and uh, they may not use it in July and June, but they sure use it during the hunting season when they're scared stiff. And so, you know, I, I think the switchgrass is, is, is a great product for that, that particular hunting period. And obviously the screening is really important, that, you know, to reduce the, the sight lines for the, for the deer so they're more comfortable. And, you know, I, I've done some wildlife studies in terms of how agriculture impacts wildlife. And, you know, it's, it's all about security first for animals, and then they, they care about food. So, you know, it's, it's all about security. And so if the animal's not secure, they're, they're not going to go for the ease of feeding. So, you know, a lot of people put down these deluxe, magnificent, huge food plots when they'd be a lot better to break it up with uh, switchgrass screening and uh, put more of the land area into, into switchgrass, and especially in egg zones where there's an abundance of food and there's a lack of uh, security. So, we, you know, that's where, that's where I think switchgrass has the, the, the greatest fit and the biggest acreage potential is, is, in, the, is in marginal lands near ag areas and uh, it's cheap to install and you get results quickly. So, so you know, there's a lot of people working really hard in, 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 the, in, in forests to, to create that cover. But the beauty of the switchgrass is it's low labor and it's cheap to install and fast. Let's just talk a little bit about establishment. And these new varieties, you mentioned earlier, they have a lot of vigor. And they they send, they seem to, in my experience, and, and actually 
I, I remember a client last year I reached out to you and I asked you a question. We had a client that was planning in July and uh, we got about a foot of growth uh, and uh, it was tough conditions at that point in time. And I think we had talked about having a, a cover seed, usually oats, and I've done that in the past. You gave me a recommendation of, of seeding amounts, et cetera. And the one thing I want to get into is how quickly from establishment standpoint, you know, the old rule of thumb was, oh, the soil hits a certain temperature, you know, don't spray anything, the, you know, the, the seed's going to develop, get ready. And I think you're starting to notice that the vigor and vitality is somewhat different with these new varieties that you've come up with. Can you comment a little bit about that? Well, historically, they, they always said you got to be patient with switchgrass. And it's sleep one year, creep, leap in the third year. You know, and that, that certainly is not something farmers would be interested in. So we're trying to make them leap in the first year. And normally, we, we consider a, a good benchmark is that the, the, the switchgrass should hit two feet in two months. And, you know, with, with our, our RC Big Rock, it often gets to six feet tall. In, in the first year. And that's unheard of with other varieties. Like, you know, you're doing well to get four and a half feet with, with something like Cave and Rock. And our new genetics we have coming, uh, that we're seed increasing right now, it'll get seven feet in the first year. So, so like, you know, who wants to spray, mow, wait for three years? Spray, mow, wait. Like, it's just, it's just not. It's <laughs> no way. It's no way to, for the future. So I think we're going to see a, you know, the, basically the sector turn over to these improved varieties. And and the, the U.S. researchers are working on the lowlands. There's some really nice lowlands that are coming on the market, and we can mix those with the uplands. So you get the fast emergence, and then you get a big robust lowland. You know that that'll that'll take you through the end of the season. So we we encourage people to plant lowland upton mixtures in places like kentucky um and you get you get the real fast site capture with the with the upland and you get a little bit more disease resistance and um you know growth with the with the lowlands so we, we think that's a great thing for the for the habitat sector but like in in the, in the corn belt you know it's it's basically all all uplands and the, the lowlands are a bit risky in terms of the first winter especially for winter kill, like for example, we can't we can't grow lowlands in eastern Ontario or Montreal. Sure. They just winter. They just winter kill. So let, you mentioned agricultural settings, and and immediately to my mind, calls uh, prairie steps coming to my mind, and and I could see them in the used well in those applications, and certainly again the the vigor here is is, is critical. Obviously, uh, dealing with overspray too, in, in a lot of those situations really puts a hurting on some of the plants that that you know. Uh, that are on the landscape, but I want to go to another topic and, and I'm, I'm not going to try to be controversial with you. I was, I was thinking about going there, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there, but these varieties today, and, and you mentioned, you know, some other plants initially, we were talking through a couple topics there. When you think of switching and, and going to these improved blends or varieties, excuse me, do you feel like, you know, the, the traditional blends are, are just kind of at a loss and, and to focus on these new blends, but there's new things that are on the market that I'm starting to see come to light. In fact, something somebody called me today and said they're out of um, Florida. And this isn't new. They, they were they were planting sugarcane for screening. And, um, you know, that that's not a native uh, variety of, of plant, but I'm not even sure where it comes from, maybe Brazil. 
I'll have to, I'd have to do some research there, but you know, they're planting sugarcane, now deer hammer sugarcane. And so, you know, it's a screen slash food source, et cetera. So in some of these other instances and examples, we're seeing a lot of non-native plants come into the landscape and being kind of used as, as a comparative or basis. And um, these varieties that have been kind of mixed, blended, and hybridized, et cetera, what is your opinion on, you know, the switch blends today that we have in our locale, locale that either been naturalized or in these cases hybridized, and they have you know good vigor, standability, all the all the form and function that we want, and then some of these plants that are coming over from from other countries that are that are not native. And um, what are your opinion on on these hybridized? What's natural? What's not natural? I kind of want you to go down this road. And uh, I was going to bring up miscanthus grass specifically, and and you can buy that all over the place around me. There's different breeders and sources. What do you think about those in comparison to switchgrass specifically? Well, we just try to explain to people that that um, it's really like first and foremost, it's a cost issue, and that to install a screening of switchgrass that's 15 feet wide, it costs you about 10 cents per per yard for the plant material. Whereas if you put a three row row of of miscanthus, it's about two dollars and fifty cents for that same yard. So it's it's at least twenty five times more expensive. And then you got to water it if you get a drought, and you got to hand plant it. So it's to me it's 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 not a serious competitor with switchgrass as a screening. It's just like maybe you can put it around your your hunting blind, but it's 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 not it's not a credible option for large scale hunting. Because you can't scale it because it's just too expensive if you do the math. Like, it's, it's 25 times more expensive than it's good. Who really wants to water during a drought all, all summer long like they had in the Midwest last year? So I, th- I think there, there's, a, there's a performance issue with miscanthus as a, as a screen. Is it's just not scalable. And, um, you know, in terms of invasiveness – I know there's research work right now in, in, in Europe trying to make seed-established miscanthus for biomass, for pulp and paper, and for other applications. Sure. And, if, and if this stuff gets into the, the, the landscape in North America, it's just going to take off. You know, we, we've seen what's happened with Phragmites, you know, and that's, that's the case where the, the native Phragmites outcrossed with, the, with a Eurasian Phragmites and created this hybrid that's a, it's a biological monster. You know, we have it here around Montreal, and it, it keeps expanding. I'm sure you must have it in New York. Oh, we have it all over the place. It's one of the biggest. Yeah. I, I, I'm dealing with noxious plants all the time. So to get something like that out of the equation, get Phragmites out of the equation, it takes three years, and you're constantly dealing with seed sources that are all over the place. When you get into these noxious plants, I just I struggle with what are the next steps because they're all over the landscape, and they just plague you. And it doesn't allow for variety. And, and the, the goal here is diversity, right? That's, that's the goal 90% of the time. So when you're, you're held back because of that, that, that becomes problematic. It's interesting, I want to bring up one last topic with you, is, you know, switchgrass varieties that, that I've played with over the years, they have a tendency to spread pretty, pretty frequently. We, we know that songbirds love seed off those switchgrass plantings. And, um, you know, I see it as a benefit because it does spread in the landscape like a lot of plants do. But I've seen switchgrass become a bit problematic in some of the areas that I've worked on, particularly if they want to limit its its uh, its locality. Um, have you seen that? And how do you feel about the remarks I just made on it? 
Well, I'll start on the bird's side because every morning I go out with my switchgrass seed and I pour it on my balcony, uh, you know, um, and, and I, feed, I feed the birds. So I feed sparrows, juncos, and cardinals, and they love switchgrass seed. And I have a lot, a lot of switchgrass seed that we clean out that I can feed to, to the birds. So, yeah, I do think the switchgrass is, is a great product for, um, for also for game birds. Like I, I think it's going to support pheasant populations oh, absolutely. and tur- turkeys and, um, you know, quail. So, so I think the food resource of switchgrass is a big advantage over, over uh, a non-seed producing crop like, like miscanthus, you know, like we have a lot of food in that, in that field and you got cover. So it's going to, it's going to create like, it's going to feed a, a, a big biodiversity off, all, all, off that food resource. So your, your your first question again was was what John? Well, I just I was mentioning just the the volume of seed that it produces, and you know you're I, I was sitting in my tree stand this year, and I'm watching all the birds just take advantage of the grass, and and I looked at it as a resource, but I also know for some people, certain clients, you know they're getting in their food plots, and then they get a little upset, and I'll I'll tell you one thing, I'd rather have a food plot surrounded by switchgrass than a variety of other plants that are not native that have a tendency to basically, you know, overcome and overtake some of the areas that I'm trying to reclaim necessarily. So I actually use it kind of as a, almost a shielding effect in some capacity where you're kind of building yeah. that cover around your, your food plot. I see it as a major advantage, at least for movement and cover. So the point I was making earlier is some of the noxious seeds yeah, varieties out there could be problematic for some people that just want kind of this clean environment. And I just... I was getting to the point that it doesn't work that way, and, and that was kind of what I was kind of pulling out of the discussion. It, it just These are good producers of seed, and they're on the landscape, and they provide opportunity. And to your point earlier, the seed source is a, is a great benefit to, to some of the birds that you had mentioned earlier, and, and I think yeah. we, we should take advantage of that. Well, I think I, as far as spread here in the Northeast, there's virtually no spread of switchgrass that I've seen in, in Montreal. So the seed doesn't have any like uh, hairs on it that it'll take off with the wind. And so it's doesn't have what's, what's called flight appendages where it can take off and travel kilometers or, or miles. Second, second point is, is that switchgrass doesn't have big creeping rhizomes. So it doesn't spread in the soil and uh, it doesn't grow super early in the spring. So it, it doesn't outcompete like native native plants, like, like you'd have with reed canary grass, for example. And and it doesn't have like a big spear that comes out of the ground like miscanthus or um, phragmites. So so all these things together make stack traits for invasiveness. So switchgrass doesn't really have those stack traits. You know, it, it doesn't grow early in the spring. It's it's tall, but it's not super tall. It comes out in the spring, you know, somewhat early, but not earlier than the native cool season grasses. And, you know, it doesn't go into wetlands. So, like, like Phragmites would, for example. So, it doesn't have stack traits. I, I don't consider. I don't think there's very many people that consider it a, an invasive, like a, a strongly uh, expanding plant. The only time you'll see it is on disturbed environments, like the side of a road, uh, road construction. So, I, I see switchgrass mostly here. I see it on the sides of highways, and I've seen it in China where it takes off, where they've overgrazed, and it, and and the seed would would move. Um, into these, into these basically empty soils that need to be covered. So until, unless you've got a really severely disturbed area, it's not going to move. 
And uh, in the case of other plants that we know of, they'll move and they'll, they'll, they'll take over areas. Like we've, we've got feral populations of ornamental switchgrass um, right around my house, you know, like within a kilometer. So, so I think there's certain plants like Phragmites and seed-borne types of miscanthus that are just, just, just disastrous. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, yep. and, 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 you know, to be fair, the existing miscanthus is out there. It's, it's, it has low uh, potential for being invasive, but wow, what's coming in Europe with, 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 what's, what they're doing is uh, creating like viable seed producing miscanthus. Like if that stuff gets over here and it's likely it will, it's going to move. It's going to move and be just as bad as Phragmites or worse. Because it's it's a C four plant, it's got more drought tolerance. Absolutely, and that that is scary to me. Let me bring you down one other road. So we had a lot of conversation today on switchgrass and your varieties, and and I appreciate you talking about those varieties. You brought up big blue, and I'm going to bring up Indian grass as another example. Have you found alternatives or things that people should also consider in grass plantings in combination? And I don't want to go down the four row, but other grasses as an alternative to switchgrass that, that might be more localized or native to their area that you just, you know, as a suggestion for, for clients or folks that are looking at variety. Well, there's a couple of challenges with, with complex mixtures. And first is like Indian grass isn't as well adapted to the East as big blue stem and switchgrass. And, and if you go to the West, Indian grass is very strong in a mixture. So that's a great place for, for Indian grass, and you can do Indian grass, big blue stem, switchgrass mixtures, let's say in South Dakota. But like in New York State, um, you, you, we think that big blue stem and switchgrass are the most logical ones to use. Absolutely. And, and it also complicates the herbicides because, for example, switchgrass is not very tolerant, tolerant to plateau, and Indian grass and big blue stem are. And then... Indian grass isn't very tolerant of atrazine or simazine. So, so then you got, you got a situation, how are you going to establish this three-way mix? So, you know, I, I think logically you, you use big blue stem and switch in the East and you can use like a three-way mix in the West. I think that's good to bring that up just as an example, because I think the combination that I brought up earlier of those varieties of switchgrass and then thinking about other varieties just in your mixes and developing those fairly. And you brought up the effect of herbicide, and we won't get into that in this podcast, but thinking about what those herbicides may be and the combination thereof, same thing with food plots and, and those type of varieties of plants that you may come up with that may have limitations, so to speak, because of herbicide. I'm going to bring up one last thing, and I know we went over our time, but this has been a ball having a conversation with you. You know, I've I've developed switchgrass plantings in a, a bunch of different scenarios, and and sometimes you know it's it's best to just just take your time and think through the process. Now, this time of year, we're we're in, you know, I guess we're in February, going into March. We're, we're starting to creep into March. Is it a good time to to broadcast seed, particularly in the northern latitudes? just on the ground and and again this is contextual because you need to know what the ground currently had or previously had you know and in those situations but it's a good time to start frost seeding and what do you just think about folks that frost seed does does that work well i think there's a lot of people in the habitat sector that you know are not going to invest in a big tractor and a big drill and that um 
you can do it. You can do. It's a pretty resource efficient way to get your switchgrass established. You can, and um, if you if you do a proper land prep, um, people are getting the results. I think it's more more a challenge on sandy soils because you don't have that same um, you know humidity coming from underneath the seed, so you you can lose the stand, and um, you don't get as much integration of the seed into the soil through freeze thaw action. So. I would say like in southern areas and really uh, coarse sands, those are more risky, and I would drill those sites. But like basically the uh, the northeast and the northern corn belt, you know, it's it's a great practice. And we really like this RC Tecumseh seed in the, in the, in the, in the frost seedings because it's a small seed and um, it has high seedling vigor. So it's the only small seeded switchgrass that has high seedling vigor. And we often tell people to mix it with the big rock, and and people are getting great stands and really like that. So that's been very popular is a is a mixture of RC Tecumseh and RC Big Rock for frost seeding. That's good. I didn't I didn't think about combining those two for that scenario, but I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Have you ever used a prairie drop seed? That that's something that I used in in a, a, a project in, in kind of some of the sampling areas in combination. Have Have you ever used that variety of plant? No, the only the only thing we, we we used for for sands once is we were trying to develop a a, a, a crop called prairie sand reed, and the spikes that it had in the spring were just deadly, and and that like I wouldn't let my dog in the field because there was about a three week period because it, it it was it was for example at the bottom of some of the Great Lakes, and the sand beaches, and that spiky that spike would, would be able to take like three or four inches of sand and get through it. But it was just a deadly species to, to, to work with. So there's, you know, there's lots of different species out there. We've worked with, we worked with probably like six, six native grasses and, um, you know, stuff like cord grass. Oh just, yeah. Cord grass. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just, just terrible to work with. Just <laughs> terrible to work with. You know, as, as you know, there's just way too many things to fix. And so we, we, you know, it, it, it was difficult to get it established. The seed was like, you know, I don't know if it was 500 bucks an acre and, um, uh, you know, difficult to, uh, bale. And so the, the balers were burning because they, they were wrapping. So it was, it was just like one problem after the other with cord grass. And then the prairie sand reed, like I said, it was just, it was just deadly to grow. And we already have enough problems with switchgrass causing flats on tires. So, like, <laughs> so you know, there's, there's, I, I think that big blue stem and, and switchgrass, at least for the east, are just tremendous species for the habitat sector. And we're real excited about introducing these new big blue stems into the market in the next several years. Oh, that's going to be exciting. And I, it's nice to know that, that you're really working on, on a different variety to it. And uh, again, th- these other varieties that you talked about, you know, currently and, and advancing those even further. I think it's, I think it's a game changer. I, I think for most people, you know, my experience, just seeing it come out of the ground, you know, the big rock, just come out of the ground and just develop. And I'm like, wow, I've, I've never seen that type of vigor before. And, and, and particularly planting late, you know, I planted mid July and, and we got growth. I was it just impressive, you know, just to see that. And it's it just such a big change. It speeds up my job, makes folks happier, uh, gives them more options. And uh, options are great, at least uh, for my clients. So, you know, I really appreciate the work, you know, that, that you've done all these years. And, 
know, kind of a pleasure to have you on this podcast. I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge. You've, you've been all over the world. You've, you've done a lot of things. And I'm, I'm sure that this is, uh, this is a labor of love for you. And, and you're, you're getting to see the benefit across. And you got a huge following. And uh, people, uh, and I've been following the stuff that you're doing online. And it's just, it's amazing to see, you know, how people are catching, catching on to these and, and recognizing its, its versatility. And uh, we spoke to, about that today. And I think people should really think about switchgrass is not just a screening. It, it provides a lot of robustness and it's, it's highly valued in the landscape. It's going to be used for, you know, a lot of species, a lot of focal species. And if you design it right and do your layout correctly, you can get some of these small, you know, birds. We, we talked earlier about some of the bird varieties, but in my area grouse, um, I've set it up where grouse like particular areas, and I've actually used your variety to establish that. And even on rocky soils, uh, amazingly enough, I, I've used one of your blends to kind of come up with a plan and layout. So it's worked really well for me. So I, I'm, I'm just happy to have you on the podcast and and to learn more. So uh, hopefully we can have you on again. I think we might want to talk about establishment and I'd like to hear some of the trials and tribulations and things that you've you've learned either in herbicide or just just planting techniques and methodologies that that might be you know kind of next level for folks. Well, great to talk to you to, uh, tonight, uh, John, and and uh, I'm glad you're getting the results. And I hope you po- post them on our Facebook site, Switchgrass for Habitat, because <laughs> it's all about the results. It doesn't matter how much hype you have or how much history you have. It's all about individuals getting great results and the best results they've ever had. Yeah. So for you specifically, um, and I know that you're you're not individually selling your product. It's, it's through distribution channels. How do people find your product? Well, m- most people like to find, learn about the product through the the Facebook sites that we've set up um, and uh, there's dealer, there's dealers there. And basically wh- whoever's selling like habitat seed now, that's a leader in the habitat sector, they're handling our products. Yeah. There's not too many that, that don't, don't, don't have um, our product in their shelves now. I know John Comp sells it obviously. And, and there's, a, there's a few other guys that I know. So, you know, we, we've used him as a resource, but you know, I, I just think people, if, if you want to, if you're you're looking to buy this product, it's it's probably hard to get at this point in time because a lot of people have bought up probably most of the stock. But it is available, and I'm, I'm sure if you are looking for it, you know you need to move quick at least for this season. Hopefully, you've done the prep work, kind of going into uh, the fall months, and, and you're ready to get going. So hopefully, people uh, people are prepared for that. Anything yeah. else from you? Well, I'm just going to say people could Google RC Big Rock Switchgrass, and they'll it'll pop up where you can pick it up. Okay, good. Please do that, Roger. Anything else from you? Anything else? You no, want to I'm, I'm. I'm good. It's just great talking to you, John. And it's. I'm. I'm. I'm hoping that we we have a lot of listeners that are looking to get better results and uh, know that know that you know the ag breeders are are working for the sector by developing these biomass plants that are going to make it a little get people better results and easier. Yeah, and I'm convinced so, and I'm seeing it myself. And if, if everybody follows me, they realize that we're here all about quality and doing the right thing. So, you know, if I'm using these varieties, and uh, actually the rest of the consultants that, you know, contribute to this podcast also plant these varieties. I'm not the only one. So, you know, just just be mindful of that, and uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's why we're pushing the product. Well, it's, it's, it's a great compliment when the installers choose your product. You know, that's, that's, that, that's really like, if you don't have the installers using your product, you got a problem. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I appreciate having the conversation. 
I'd like to have you back on. I'd like to talk more about switchgrass and, um, you know, thanks for spending time with me tonight. Okay. Thanks so much, John. All right. Talk to you, Roger. Cheers. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.